from Spam 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 Humbug. I'm Kenneth Cooley, better known as WTF Dragon, and this is a complete reading of Andrea Cantato's Through the Moongate. We both traveled in the geek and nerd crowds, and within a short period of time, our circle of players grew. Robert White. I was normally a BC student, but I competed successfully at science fairs, so the school knew I was a good independent student, and even though there was no such thing as independent work projects, they let me have my own class. No teacher, no curriculum. Every semester I said, I'm going to make some games and I'll show them to you when I'm done. And they said, go for it. I wrote 28 games throughout high school. Richard Garriott, Explore Create. Richard Garriott was born on July 4th, 1961, in Cambridge, England, to Helen Mary Walker and Owen Key Garriott. The third of what would later be four children, Richard had two brothers, Robert and Randall, and eventually a younger sister, Linda. His parents were both American citizens, and when Richard was a few months old, they decided to move and settle permanently in the United States. However, his birth in the United Kingdom would later play a significant role in Richard's life. In the early 1960s, his father was promoted from assistant professor to associate professor at the Department of Electrical Engineering at Stanford University in California. Through a bizarre series of coincidences, a handful of years later, a young student named Nolan Bushnell, future co-founder of Atari and designer of Pong, had in the Stanford AI lab a fateful and dazzling encounter with Space War, one of the very first video games. In 1965, Owen Garriott was selected by NASA from a very small group of six scientists to become an astronaut. Owen's work forced the whole family to move to Nassau Bay, Texas, near the Johnson Space Center, the mission control center of all manned space expeditions. 1973 was the year of the Skylab mission, which, for a short time, made Richard's father the astronaut with the record for longest time spent in space, about 60 days. Upon his return to Earth, the astronaut was interviewed publicly with his family, as per the political conventions of the time due to the Cold War and the space race. Richard was 12 when he was immortalized on film playing with a miniature replica of Skylab 3, the small metal shell that had kept his father alive in space for two months. Richard grew up surrounded by science and technology. The world around him began to change at an ever-increasing pace, while the computer revolution taking place in research institutes made its way into universities and then into higher education. In 1964, a couple of teachers at Dartmouth College in New England, John George Kemeny and Thomas Eugene Kurtz, realized that, for the first time, it was possible to offer their students programming courses. They also decided that the programming languages available were too difficult for young people as a first experience. And for this reason, inspired by Fortran and Algol, Kemeny and Kurtz laid the foundations for a new programming language. They had just finished installing a new time-sharing system based on a general electric mainframe, the Dartmouth time-sharing system, and called their language BASIC, Beginners, All-Purpose, Symbolic Instruction Code. Students designed their own programs, writing lines of basic code into their notebooks, then storing them on hand-punched tapes. By operating teletypewriters wired to the main computer, in some cases from remote sites using modems, they would run their own programs on the mainframe and see the output printed on paper. To spread the new language as widely as possible, 
Kemeny and Kurtz decided not to sell it and distributed the compiler to numerous schools in New Hampshire, working to promote it and add new functions over the years. Thanks to this approach, by the mid-1970s, BASIC had spread throughout the United States, including to Clear Creek High School, Richard's School, where, in 1975, he began to attend some programming courses using BASIC. Richard, at least initially, was not very interested in computer science, unlike the majority of his peers, given the daily contact with new technologies, as well as scholars, researchers, scientists, and even astronauts. He gave little importance to computers. To Richard, they were simply part of the environment in which he lived, and were nothing special. What really interested him were the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, in particular, The Lord of the Rings, of which he was an avid fan. In the summer of 1977... Owen and Helen Garriott decided to send Richard to a summer camp at the University of Oklahoma. At the end of the season, their son would begin his final year of high school, and his parents, especially his father, had high expectations of him. The main purpose of the summer course was for Richard to learn programming skills in Fortran. As useful as that may have been at the time, the courses were less influential on Richard's future than other experiences he had in Oklahoma. In fact... In the few weeks he spent at the campus, two events occurred that would mark his life forever. Contained and shy, for the first time in his life, Richard found himself having to deal with the challenge of settling into a new environment, in contact with strangers. Luckily, some of his peers broke the ice. When a small group of boys gathered around him, Richard greeted them with a formal hello that caught everyone by surprise. No one from around here says hello, they challenged. The discussion that followed helped the boys get to know each other better. When Richard explained that he was born in England, the boys connected this curious circumstance with the greeting. It didn't matter that Richard had only spent a couple of months in the UK and then as an infant. It didn't matter that he had a Texan accent. As a joke, they called him Lord British. And the young man liked the nickname so much that he kept it forever. The nickname alone would have changed nothing if Richard hadn't had an unexpected encounter with Destiny. After entering one of the campus recreation rooms, the young man saw his peers talking about monsters, swords, and spells. When he asked what they were doing, the explanation dazzled him. It was a game that allowed anyone to relive the adventures that he had enjoyed so much while reading the works of Tolkien. It was Dungeons and Dragons, the role-playing game created by Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson. After timidly witnessing his first adventure, Richard became a regular player, devoting a large part of his free time to D&D. His enthusiasm and passion for the game helped him break down the barriers and shyness that had initially isolated him. It was a summer of programming and girls. It was one of those pivotal moments. A lot of firsts happened there, he recounted years later. If you want to find out more about that story, check out Dungeons and Dreamers, The Rise of Computer Game Culture from Geek to Schick by Brad King and John Borland. At the end of the summer of 77, Richard had changed, in a sense. A new world had opened up before his eyes after the abrupt change of environment, and the first thing he did was try to bring some of that experience that he had gained in Oklahoma to Texas. The first person to get involved with Dungeons & Dragons back in Texas was Robert White, a longtime friend of Richard's. Both boys had parents involved in science and technology. White's father was a flight technician, while, of course, Richard's dad was an astronaut. In fact, the Elder White and the Elder Garriott were colleagues at NASA in Houston and had known each other for a long time. Robert, a year older, had met Richard for the first time in 1971 at a Weebelows event, an intermediate class between Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts in the Boy Scouts of America program. 
As White explains it, quote, Richard and I were participating in the high school science fair. Both of us had been participating every year since we were in kindergarten, both with a big passion for science, when during one of the downtimes, he showed me these three little game pamphlets he had picked up. These were the three original D&D books. I didn't have much time to view them, but the next day he and I and a couple of other friends tried a little game with Richard as the first DM, end quote. In addition to the two friends, the group that was formed included Elizabeth Frobel, Chuck Busch, Renee Hans, and Keith Zabalui, a young boy who lived in the house next to the Garriott family. None of Richard's friends knew about D&D, but the promise of a lot of fun was enough to drag the geeky teenagers to the table where Garriott staged his first adventure as a dungeon master, the storyteller of a role-playing game. The D&D session was so satisfying that the group asked to meet more often. Word spread quickly at school, and more and more kids asked to join, to the point that Garriott's house was literally invaded by aspiring young players. Again, according to White, quote, Things kind of snowballed from there. We soon had games every Friday night over at Richard's house with about 8 to 10 people. His mother made cake every game session, and both parents laughed and encouraged our creativity in this storytelling game. It became apparent quickly that our games were too big to manage, so we ended up splitting them in two. I became the other chief DM, and Richard continued his game. End quote. Richard's mother, Helen, in addition to constantly baking cakes, had to leave the studio where she worked as an artist at their disposal. She transferred her equipment to the garage outside the house, a move that she would have to repeat, but backwards a few years later, to leave her son the garage space to complete one of his greatest exploits. By his own admission, Richard was initially not one of the best DMs. His adventures resulted in brief introductions to the game's background story in preparation for his favorite activity, the fights, challenging the players with increasingly dangerous and fearsome opponents. White, on the other hand, was rather skillful at creating dark adventures and demonic environments where players would face his diabolical machinations. According to White, the style of the two DMs was closely linked to each other's literary tastes. Quote, Richard was more into much lighter fantasy reading outside of LOTR than I was. I was reading lots of Burroughs, Tarzan, Mars, Howard, Conan, Lovecraft, and the new fantasy kid, Stephen R. Donaldson, Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, at the time. My games became more complicated, interconnected, and darker. The two game systems became a success, and we would often play in each other's realms when the crowd was light. But that became less and less as more people began to play. End quote. The group grew to about 30 participants, a real invasion of the Garriott house, which forced the boys to find other venues for their games to ease the pressure off of Richard's family. Observing other dungeon masters at work over time, the young Garriott was able to improve the quality of his stories and to create more interesting twists. One of them, written by him at around the age of 17, described the ascent and fall of the fearsome magician Mondane in the lands of Cesaria. Role-playing had become a very important part of Richard's daily life, both as he went to school and in his spare time between classes. He enjoyed reliving and talking about previous adventures with his fellow players, and in the trusty black notebook kept under his belt, the young student took notes and drew maps endlessly, to the point that he decided to combine the useful with the enjoyable. Remember that basic course offered at Clear Creek High School? Using terminals, students could connect to a DEC, that was the Digital Equipment Corporation, PDP-11 mini-computer, and thanks to a time-sharing system, make use of its resources. In a world where even the most important companies bought machine time from giants like General Electric rather than equipping themselves with the heavy, bulky, and expensive mainframes, the teletypewriters that Richard had access to were state-of-the-art. 
the quick rise of the microcomputer had already begun. Personal computers would soon become staples in the homes of millions of families and schools. Curiously, just a handful of years earlier, a young man named William Henry Gates III had also learned BASIC using a teletype Model 33. Nicknamed Bill, he had already gained recognition, as a child, for his innate ability to crash the systems he put his hands on, and would soon show that he could commercially exploit the language that its creators, Professors Kimeny and Kurtz, had decided to freely distribute. Despite Richard's lack of interest in computer science, thanks to the summer camp at the University of Oklahoma, his programming skills were now more advanced than those needed to follow the lessons organized at school, to the point that even teachers had little to offer him. For this reason, Richard came up with a bold idea that would allow him to work independently on computers and combine his passion for role-playing with school's demands. The boy asked the principal for permission to customize his curriculums towards computer science. He would try to program a computer game for the end of each semester, and this would be worth an A. <laughs> Recognizing his enthusiasm, the principal accepted. This required bending the rules a little bit. Richard's computer courses were recorded as courses in foreign languages, in which the young Garriott would participate alone. Soon, Richard found himself writing notes on his first program, D&D 1, while waiting patiently for his turn on the computer. It's difficult nowadays to imagine how the prototypes written by the young Garriott would work. The teletypewriters he had access to were without monitors. They were typewriters operated remotely from the mainframe to which they were connected, and the output of the program was printed on continuous paper. Lacking graphical capabilities of any kind, the teletypewriters were limited to printing a small set of individual characters and capital letters only, even more restricted than their typewriter ancestors. Garriott and White had already had some contact with the very first video games. According to White, quote, We held meetings at the TRW building across from NASA, and they gave us access to the mainframes and taught us how to program. We actually got pretty good, focusing mostly on Fortran and some basic programming. We even tried our hand at wireframe graphics. We would often dial into the University of Houston computers and play an ASCII Star Trek game. End quote. Programmed by Mike Mayfield, Star Trek was inspired by the epic television series of the same name, featuring crew members from the Enterprise. The idea behind the game was the result of a collaboration between Mayfield and some of his schoolmates, but it was Mayfield himself who wrote the program in the summer of 1971. By irregularly connecting to the University of California mainframes, Mayfield had scheduled everything in a few weeks. According to Mayfield, quote, Back in 1971, I was a senior in high school. My school didn't have any computers, but I managed to use, read, steal, an account on a Sigma 7 at University of California, Irvine. I was trying to teach myself BASIC from a book. At the time, there was a program that ran on a vector graphics terminal on the Sigma 7 that was a simple shoot-em-up space war game. I wanted to make a game like that, but I only had access to an ASR33 teletype non-video terminal. Hey... <laughs> There's only so much I could use in high school, end quote. Mayfield was also inspired by Space War, the game that had influenced Bushnell and prompted him to enter the arcade market. However, Mayfield's approach was different because his Star Trek was a turn-based game in which the player had to manage their resources, photon torpedoes and energy, and defeat a number of enemy vessels in a randomly generated map. His experiment would have been unknown if Mike hadn't bought a small but innovative portable computer, the HP-35, and if he hadn't gone to Hewlett-Packard's local offices to ask for some tips on how to use his new hardware. On one of these visits, office staff offered Mayfield the opportunity to implement a version of his Star Trek game on their HP-2000C minicomputer. 
The latter was also a BASIC-based time-sharing system, and Mayfield's work was included in a library of software publicly distributed by HP under the name of STTR1, and later published in the book 101 Basic Computer Games. As was common in the early days of video game history, the Mayfield program passed from hand to hand and ended up attracting the attention of passionate programmers. They delighted in translating it and bringing it to other systems, adding features, modifying the gameplay, and in general trying to improve it according to their tastes. The first step was taken thanks to David H. All and Mary Cole, who rewrote it for Deck Systems and then distributed it in newsletters. It became very popular, and a version of Star Trek by Mayfield arrived on the computer systems of Houston University, where Richard and Robert White had the chance to try it out in late 1977. The Star Trek game used only text for graphics, and for the user interface. The space map, on which battles took place between the player-guided spaceship, represented with an E, and enemy Klingons, represented with a K, was a grid of 10 rows by 10 columns. The player interacted with the program by using single-character commands, such as W for warp engine or T to launch a deadly photon torpedo toward the enemies. Richard decided to follow the same concept and represent monsters or objects of his role-playing game with simple letters. The goblins, for example, were represented by a G, while an A indicated giant ants. The result was similar to that of other programs, such as Rogue, and others that will be discussed later on. It was based on a top-down view and used ASCII characters to draw maps and dungeons. The player typed in commands, which the terminal transmitted to the mainframe, and once the program was executed, it created the output on paper, reprinting the updated map. The game system was therefore turn-based, and each turn was marked by the execution of a single action that often took more than 10 seconds to be computed, and for the result to be printed by the teletypewriter. According to Garriott, quote, You had to wait 10 to 30 seconds for each new frame. Very low frame rate. Hulking is the right word. By today's standards, unbelievably slow. Coupled with that 300-baud acoustic modem. End quote. But as Richard was struggling with the difficulty of creating a game in BASIC, computer technology suddenly accelerated. Charles Ingraham Peddle was a brilliant engineer in the United States who had made his mark at General Electric in the golden years of selling time-sharing services. Noting that the market was changing and that the services that had made GE's fortune were less in demand year after year, Peddle left the company to join Motorola where he was part of Thomas H. Bennett's team that developed the MC6800, the first chip in the 6800 family, which architecture powered numerous products, such as POS systems, CRTs, some arcade and pinball machines, as well as some computer kits and microcomputers. In the mid-1970s, microprocessors were still very expensive, limiting their use. Pedal, though, was convinced that a low-cost chip could revolutionize the market, but his intuition was not shared by Motorola's management. He decided to leave Motorola and joined Moss Technology, along with many others of the MC6800 team. At Moss, the team, led by Pedal, managed to create a new chip, the Moss 6502, which could not only be sold profitably for $25 compared to $170 for the MC6800 and over $200 for the Intel 8008 but could compete on equal terms with those competing chips, and in some cases, boast even better performance. Moss's secret for providing low-cost products lay in its production process, which allowed for a much lower rate of defective chips than the competition. This made it an important driver of the microcomputer revolution. The entry of the Moss 6502 into the market forced other semiconductor manufacturers to drastically reduce the prices of their products, fueling the birth of a new industry, 
with their prices in freefall, it suddenly became possible for average consumers to afford products with microprocessors, creating a new market for all those who were interested in owning a computer themselves. Prior to the introduction of microcomputers, early adopters would build simple computers from assembly kits designed and sold by creative and capable innovators. Among this rare breed was one especially talented engineer, Steve Wozniak, who was designing his own computer around the Motorola 6800. Unlike many other computer enthusiasts who believe the Intel 8080 would win, he preferred the competitor, and, thanks to its low price, could afford buying a sample of the Moss 6502 from Pedal himself. He then adapted his microcomputer design from the 6800 to the very similar 6502. When he showed the result to his friend Steve Jobs, the latter was enthusiastic and suggested starting a business to sell assembly kits akin to what many other companies, such as Moss, MITS, and IMSAI. The leap from these first experiments to commercial prototypes was very short. Pedal himself realized the possibility, but Moss management was reluctant to venture into the niche market of microcomputers. Additionally, Motorola soon moved to crush the competition for their 6800 processors, bringing Moss to court and forcing it into an extrajudicial agreement. The purchase of Moss by calculator company Commodore, founded and led by Jack Tramiel, a Polish naturalized American entrepreneur, gave Pedal a chance to take another big step. Although, in truth, Tramiel had bought Moss only to cheapen the production of calculators and thus be able to compete on equal terms with Texas Instruments, when Pedal tried to explain to the CEO that the calculator market was in a declining phase and that microcomputers could be a new market in which to reposition themselves, with the enormous advantage of having the lowest cost chip on the market, the entrepreneur was impressed and agreed on the production of a microcomputer. To beat the competition to market with a finished product, Pedal proposed buying an already available system to Tramiel. Recalling his experience helping Wozniak and Jobs during the development of the Apple II, Pedal advised Tramiel to contact them and see if it was possible to buy their prototype, as well as improve on it and produce it en masse. The negotiations started, but Jobs was very ambitious and couldn't agree with Tramiel on terms. Apple could have been bought by Commodore, but things didn't go that direction. Therefore, Pedal had to do without the Wozniak prototype and created the Commodore PET, a powerful and relatively inexpensive microcomputer equipped with a magnetic tape reader and keyboard very similar to those of the calculators that Tramiel insisted on producing, but which were having ever greater problems because of competitions with Texas Instruments. Realizing that a microcomputer sold without an adequate operating system would not have many possibilities, at the very last minute, Pedal decided to include in the ROM of the PET a version of BASIC written by a small software house called Microsoft. The product of Paul Allen and Bill Gates was already known and appreciated in the computer world, even by users who had not purchased the expensive software license. Meanwhile, the adventure of Jobs and Wozniak had not reached its conclusion. The two succeeded in getting funds from venture capitalists, including Don Valentine and Mike Markula, and managed to launch their Apple II. This microcomputer was also based on the Moss 6502 and had characteristics very similar to the PET, both in terms of available memory and support for a magnetic tape drive. Both founders of Apple had a relationship with Nolan Bushnell of Atari. Jobs had worked there as a repairman, and Wozniak had designed the hardware layout for Atari's game Breakout, released in 1976. When Wozniak went to work on the Apple II, he aimed at making a platform that had the tools needed to create games. Wozniak wrote a dialect, Integer Basic, with graphics capabilities and color functionality, 16 in low resolution mode, 6 in high, but lacked the capabilities to perform floating-point calculations. At the same time, Radio Shack 
also wanted to offer a similar product and contacted Commodore. Once again, Tramiel was unwavering in his demands and the deal fell through, forcing Radio Shack to do it on their own. Tandy Corporation technicians, led by Steve Leininger, quickly developed the TRS-80, a microcomputer based on the Zilog Z80 processor, another low-cost chip designed by a member of the Intel 8008 development team, Federico Fagan. This chip would be used extensively for video games, such as arcade favorites like Pac-Man, Galaxian, and Galaga, and on consoles such as the Sega Master System and the Game Boy. In 1977, therefore, three different microcomputers were marketed, the Apple II by the Steves, the TRS-80 by Tandy Corporation, sold by Radio Shack, and Chuck Peddle's Commodore Pet. The first step into the IT market of the company founded by Jack Tramiel. All three computers had BASIC as a common feature, as the TRS-80 also had its own dialect based on TinyBASIC, which was written specifically for machines with little RAM. Commodore's choice of BASIC proved to be a wise decision, and within a year of releasing the PET, Apple II and TRS-80 all were shipped with a version of BASIC written by Microsoft. Wozniak, to his disappointment, had to give up on his own version of BASIC in favor of one written by Paul Allen and Bill Gates with the help of Monty Davidoff. The latter wrote the floating-point math component of MS Basic, which made it superior to all other available versions. Like his fellow students at Dartmouth, Richard had to organize his thoughts by writing down code in his notebook before later transferring it to the mini-computer during his hours of access to the teletype. Once he had typed the whole program, he could run it, study its behavior, and make changes, although he was limited by the slowness of the machine's connection. Each action could take minutes before the user could continue with the next step. The limited range of printable characters was another limitation. During these log waits, Richard imagined the possibility of having a computer all to himself so that he could proceed more quickly and not be bound by school schedules. Among the Trinity machines, the Apple II was the most interesting to make games on. It was equipped with graphical capabilities that neither the PET nor the TRS-80 had, and also had a much more comfortable keyboard than Commodore's, which was recycled from their calculators. Steve Wozniak, one of the first developers of video games, had designed the Apple II to run them, while the PET and the TRS-80 microcomputers were more business-oriented, targeted at corporations and at schools. For Garriott, an Apple II was the ideal choice, but even the most basic model cost $1,298 at the time, which is today the equivalent of about $4,200. Meanwhile, his father Owen did not have a favorable opinion of video games, though he was relieved to see his son finally interested in computer science and in programming. The summer of 1979 approaching, along with the end of the school year, Richard began anxiously considering his own situation. The end of his studies implied the loss of access to the school's computer, and therefore the suspension of his experiments, which had by now exceeded 20 revisions beyond the initial prototype. Only the purchase of a microcomputer could allow him to continue working throughout the summer break, but this would not be possible without the permission of his parents. As he had done at the beginning of the school year when entering the principal's office, Richard summoned his courage and approached his father to propose a pact. He would continue to obtain good grades at school while completing his game and making it free of bugs. In return, his parents would buy him a microcomputer. Owen Garriott accepted, and his son did not disappoint. His grades remained high and allowed him to enroll in the University of Texas following in his father's footsteps and becoming a freshman in the Electrotechnics program. Even more important to Richard, though, was that his game had reached its 28th and final version, having withstood testing without any signs of bugs or malfunctions. 
Richard had kept his word, and now it was his father's turn. The younger Garriott got his first microcomputer. A new Apple II Plus, of course. To learn more, subscribe to Spam 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 Humbug on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on anchor.fm at anchor.fm slash podcast or at spam 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 humbug.com. To find out more about Through the Moongate, visit thera.it. That's T H E I R A dot I T. You can also find the book on Amazon. And of course, you can learn more about the book and its author at andreacantado.com. That's A N D R E A C O N T A T O dot com. A big thank you to author Andrea Cantato for not only undertaking the effort of writing through the Moongate, but also for agreeing to allow for it to be read to you in this and following Spam 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 Humbug episodes. Tune in in a couple weeks' time for the next chapter. I'm going to make some games and I'll show them to you when I'm done. 